everything in my life that I've accomplished that was meaningful came from one thing, never giving up. If you have a sincere belief in the things you are doing and trying to accomplish, enthusiasm comes naturally. If you don't hold back and you learn how to share that enthusiasm with others, people will respond. And if you are willing to learn what is necessary and you have the goal you're committed to and you develop the plan and you learn what is necessary, you will never fail. You will never fail at anything. Eventually, you will succeed. That's the voice of Don Mulrath, one of the most legendary figures in Cutco Vector history and a true role model in my life. Don has succeeded at pretty much everything he's done. He's been married for 54 years, has two great kids and five grandchildren, had an illustrious career culminating as president in Vector, had the financial well-being to retire at age 55, and has a stimulating and inspiring life in his retirement. Don is the quintessential example of enthusiasm and zeal for life. Among other things, he is remembered for teaching a generation of Cutco reps and managers how to build financial freedom through his famous message, Winning the Money Game. And Don has gone way beyond just winning the money game. He has won the game of life. He shares his story and his lessons in this truly fun episode. I'm deeply honored to be able to introduce to you all today one of my first professional mentors, the legendary Don Mulrath. Welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world using lessons and skills that they first learned from selling Cutco knives with Vector Marketing Corporation. This podcast was created to share inspiring stories from Cutco's most prominent alumni and current leaders. On this show, you'll meet successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. All our guests will have two things in common. One, they're all changing lives today through their work and their influence. And two, they all started out selling Cutco knives when they were younger. The lessons of the Cutco Vector experience are numerous, are compelling, and are real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I am so fired up about today's guest because we have the legendary Don Mulrath on the podcast. Don was the Western Region Manager when I started in the business way back in 1988. He started selling Cutco in 1965, advanced to become the president of Vector West, and that was the role he was in for most of my formative years in the business. He retired in 1999 at the age of 55. And so I had the good fortune of about 11 years or so working with Don Mulrath. And I can count him as one of my most significant lifetime mentors. There were so many things that I got a chance to learn from Don that I'm sure we're going to get into here today. Some very valuable lessons. And if any of you are watching this on video, there's a sword in the background, the Excalibur sword right there. Don and I both still have a photo of when I received that sword for the standard of excellence in the company. And Don knighted me 
officially into the club of standard of excellence winners. And it's a sentimental photo that we actually both have still kept to this day. It's on the wall in my office at work. I'm really excited about this conversation. You guys are going to have a great time getting to know a great leader and an amazing individual. Don Mulrath, thanks so much for making time to be on the podcast. My pleasure, Dan. I think it's my pleasure. I'll tell you in about a half hour. (laughs) We will see for sure. So uh, I plan on putting you through the ringer here. Let's start out by taking it back to 1965 and finding out how you got started with Cutco. Well, the way I got started, Dan, was I was in college and uh, my fiance at the time, who became my wife and is still my wife of 53 years, Marty, was living with a gal that was the girlfriend of, in fact, the fiance of my brother. So they were living together. She was working full time. Marty was going to college and working only part time. So I went over to visit them one evening. So I, uh, I got to the apartment. I went in. And uh, they were in the kitchen. I walked in the kitchen, and here was this guy in there with knives spread all over the kitchen table. (laughs) So I took a look around, and I'm sure the salesman, thinking back on it, he probably took a look at me because he wasn't worried about my girlfriend. He was there to uh, my brother's fiance. He was there for her and who was working full time. So I'm sure he was very relieved when I took a look around, and I thought to myself, some guy selling knives. I went out in the living room, flicked on the TV and sat there, and I never went back in there. Turns out my brother's fiance bought a a plus 12, and Marty, my wife, she wanted to buy a trimmer, but the guy wouldn't sell it to her. You know, he just got through selling a plus 12, so he wasn't going to sell my uh, girlfriend or my, yeah, my girlfriend at that time, a trimmer. So he's walking out the door. I'm in the living room watching TV, and he gets to the door, and he opens the door, and he turns around and he said to me, hey, we're doing some expanding here in the area. Do you know anybody who's looking for a part-time job? And to this day, I don't know why I said me. <laughs> I already had a good part-time job, but I said me. I said, well, me. And so maybe I just was challenged by the way he said it. I don't know why. So anyway, he gave me an address and he said, be here at 3 o'clock tomorrow. So I went and it was in his apartment. The interview took place in his apartment. His manager at that time lived about 50 miles away, and he had come in to run the interview. So I went in for the interview. I got recruited. So I went home and told my dad that uh, I got a new part-time job selling knives. And I'll never forget this. He said, son, there's a couple things I need to tell you. First of all, everybody already has knives. <laughs> and secondly, you can't sell anything. <laughs> that was what my dad said. He was dead serious. He was dead set against me starting. But as my first week went on, I needed to sell one more set of eight steak knives to win this certain level of fast start prize I wanted. So my last night at 10 o'clock, I got my parents to buy it. So that's how I got recruited. That's how I started. It was truly a lark. Wow. Marty, who was, she tells the story that she thought when I was going to start selling knives, she thought, boy, I'm glad he's going to get this out of his system before we get married. And uh, of course, it never really got out of my system. <laughs> nice. Wow. It's so interesting to think about, Don, if, if you hadn't been there that night or you hadn't dropped in or he yep. hadn't, 
you know, you'd been somewhere else when he was leaving or he didn't say what he said to you. Like yeah. it could have altered the entire course of your life. And through the, uh, butterfly effect it could have uh, altered the whole course of others lives like myself and bruce goodman and so many others who have been so influenced by you so pretty cool to hear that start well dan you're, you're certainly right i've never really sat down and thought about all the ramifications in my life if all those things didn't happen just like they happened that night but you know this is a good time right here to talk about the power and the character of the cutco product uh I don't think I would have ever got in sales in the first place unless I believed that I was selling the best product of its kind in the world. Cutco's forever service policy allowed me and every sales rep to realistically tell customers that they are buying the best product of its kind in the world and they'll never have to replace it. Now, when you stop and think about that, that is a giant statement. And that statement can only be made about a few products throughout the entire world today. Right. Cutco is truly a unique purchase that's used several times each day for a lifetime. And when people buy it, they're buying the best and they never have to replace it. Yeah, that's true for sure. So it's great to hear that you saw that right out of the gate. I'm sure that that same pride in what we're selling, I think, is what has kept so many of us in the business for such a long time. Cutco is a great vehicle for all of the things we want in our life. So... Yeah. Hey, let's let's get into some of your uh, your stories, Don. I want to hear some stuff. Well, Dan, I know we don't only have three hours for this, right? Something like that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> My favorite stories, Dan. They all involve people who made the stories possible. The stories don't exist without the people, and it, it starts really with the many great friendships that I've developed in the business throughout the years. People like Marty Dimitrovich, Ken Schmidt. Ken was unique. His relationship with me was truly unique. We became best friends. And also, we were intense competitors. Mm. So we were both best friends and intense competitors. And we drove each other to record-setting numbers. I was fortunate to always be inspired by strong leaders. My first region manager was Al Laws, who played a significant role in my early development. My second region manager was Earl Small. And Earl had a profound and lasting impact on my growth as a leader. Don Frieda was an inspirational role model in the early Vector days. Wow, that's cool. You know, I love hearing you share that Ken was your best friend and your greatest competitor rolled into one. I think that for many of us who have been in Cutco and Vector for so long, we can really look at some of our most keen competitors as having had a profound impact on our success because of what they drove us to be able to do. I grew up competing as a division manager with Mark Lovis and Isaac Tolpin. And I think about guys like John Wasserman, you know, back East and uh, Mike Muriel and others like that, that, you know, I've been competing with and have the ultimate respect for those guys. And yet, you know, we wanted to kick each other's butts and it, it really drove us to excellence. So it's cool to hear that that started for you during those days also. How about as you got into your management career. Don, what are some uh, some other stories you can share? Well, Dan, I learned very early as a district manager that one of the greatest rewards was playing a role in the development of young people's self-confidence. So many young women and men, they come into the business without confidence in dealing with people. I was one of those people in 1965. The exposure to Cutco, the Cutco training program 
and having the determination to put those principles to work. That has seen so many young men and women actually change the direction of their lives through the self-confidence game selling Cutco. Many favorite memories that I have involve young people growing personally, developing that self-confidence, and becoming outstanding successes. As I developed and grew as a manager, one of my fondest memories is the pursuit of building the nation's record-setting division. For four years in a row, my division, or our division, came in second to Ken Schmidt's division, which is part of the story I started earlier, which got to be very frustrating. Four years in a row, and we came in second every year by just the smallest amount. Every year, it was really close. And the third place division was so far behind us, it didn't matter. It was just us two. He was in Seattle. I was in Northern California. In 1978, our organization became the first division ever to top a million dollars in sales. And we were driven to that to become number one by Ken Schmidt's division. In the next year, in 1979, we became the first division to ever top 1.5 million in sales. In the process of learning to become a successful division manager, I learned the number one principle in building a successful organization. And that principle is to surround yourself with the right kind of people. Mm -hmm. The people in that 1979 division broke every company record for one week, one month, in annual sales for every step on the cut-go ladder from personal sales on up to district manager sales. Wow. And that's something that I'll always be very proud of. Every single record, Dan, for one week, one month, and annually at every level of the business was all, were all broken by that group of people in that year. Tad McCarley was a key driving force in that organization. And Bruce Goodman, who we're going to mention several times, started in the business as a college sales rep in that organization that shattered all the all-time records. Yeah, wow. So during my 35-year career, I've seen Cut go through, go through three different company structures. And the Vector West organization that developed after the last restructure was a group of dynamic people I'll never forget. Dan, you, you were a youngster in that group. Yeah, that was when I started. Yeah, and you remember all these names I'm going to mention. And today, from today's Vector world, Lloyd Reagan, John Carpenter, Brad Britton, those guys were all important parts of that Vector West organization. True. Bruce Goodman was the um, sales promotion manager and a critical, critical part of helping me develop the organization. Key division managers, Mark Caruso, Filippo Mancini, and Steve Weber, they were all great leaders at the division manager level. In many ways, that period of my career was the most rewarding and exciting. The people and the things we accomplished in a very short period of time in the rebirth of the Cutco business were amazing. And it was just such an exciting time in my life. Even Al DiLeonardo and Mike Lancelot played a role, although a different kind of role. They were not directly in the Vector West organization. They both led the Vector East organization. Right. We had a very keen competitive relationship, a friendly relationship, and a friendly competitive relationship with, between Vector East and Vector West. And that competition was a driving force that caused all of us to stretch to the max in rebuilding what was then the early stages 
of the last stage of the uh, Cutco business. Mm -hmm. When I think about the later stages of my career, as I neared early retirement, I was honored to mentor two of the great leaders of today's business. Uh, Bruce Goodman, who, of course, is your president of Vector West, and Amar Deve, who is an executive vice president with the company today. Right. When I was working with them, both of them were promoted and took over regions that were on the bottom, on the bottom of the ladder. In fairly short order, both of them created national championship organizations. I'm so proud to have been associated with them, Dan, and their success is, is one of the proudest memories I have of my career. Yeah. Wow. There's so many great people that you referenced, Don, that you have had a profound impact on. Bruce and, and Amar, of course, which uh, people today know, Lloyd and Brad and John Carpenter, you know, everybody today knows those guys as well. These are all like larger than life figures in Vector now who were all people that were mentored or guided by you uh, throughout those times. So, and, and I know, uh, you know, hearing the story of how your division was second four years in a row, I heard that a lot of times. And then you guys broke through, you know, to, to not just be number one, but to just smash the records and to become one of the top performing teams in the company. Like that was really, really phenomenal and uh, some awesome stuff. So it's cool to hear some of those stories right there. Yeah, it's, it's really hard for me to tell you these stories, but I'm working real hard at it. <laughs> You've always been uh, the consummate storyteller for sure, Don. I want to get into talking about some of the most valuable lessons uh, that you feel like you've learned through your time with Vector and that are lessons that you've also shared with others during your time with Vector. So why don't we talk about, uh, about that, some of the lessons. Yeah, when I started selling Cutco, a paring knife cost $3.65. A trimmer was six seventy-five. Shears were eight twenty-five. A homemaker was ninety-one dollars and ten cents. You had—I know this is hard, hard for you to imagine today—but I had to sell three homemakers and two old knife sets to have a four hundred dollar week. <laughs> wow, I know that's hard to imagine knowing today's prices. The three most valuable lessons, Dan, that I think I've learned in my Cutco and Vector experiences. Were number one, developing the ability to set goals. And in, number two, in building an organization to surround yourself with the right kind of people. And the third most valuable lesson is my personal secret to success, which I'll detail in, in just a minute. Establishing well-defined goals. After my first four months in the business, I was fairly successful as a cutco sales rep. And then I suffered a severe case of fear of rejection. I mean, this was severe enough. It was paralyzing. Hmm. I remember I'd pick up the phone to make phone calls, and I couldn't. I just couldn't do it. I'd hang up the phone. Uh, it almost drove me out of the business. Now, what had happened is Marty and I had gotten married because I thought I could earn enough money while going to college, working part-time. Then the fear gripped me. Now, maybe the fear had something to do psychologically with the fact I was married and now I had this responsibility. I don't know why it happened, but I know that it did happen and I almost quit. Hmm. What helped me overcome the fear was I knew what being an all-American meant in the business. At that time, being an all-American meant you were among the top 10 college sales reps in the country. And 
I wanted to be an All-American. I'd always had that underlying goal that I wanted to become an All-American. So I decided to set a goal that I was going to become an All-American in 1966. And the determination that I needed to overcome the fear of rejection came out of that goal because the desire to achieve that goal helped me overcome the fear. And so I started off with a goal of selling $400 a week. And my goal was to earn $8,000 selling Cutco part-time for the year. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the inflation rate <laughs> at $8,000 uh, earning part-time in a year. And I don't know what that equates to today, but it's certainly one heck of a lot more than 8000 It's probably a lot more than 30000 Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what the number would be. Yeah. But that goal gave me the confidence, gave me the determination, overcome the fear. So in 1966, Ken Schmidt was the national champion college sales rep, and I came in fourth. And that began my career of chasing Ken <laughs> until I finally caught him after a dozen years in 1978 when we were both division managers. Oh, wow. So you were at number four college student sales rep or number, I guess, overall sales rep in the whole company in that year, 1966? No, that was just college sales rep. Oh, college were, sales reps. Yeah, yeah, that didn't include the full-time guy. So. Got it. Got it. Cool. And the, the, the college All-American race was a, a calendar year at that time? Yes, it was a calendar year. Yeah, wow. So, yep. Okay. Cool. So Ken was number one, you were number four, and having that goal was a driver for you to overcome that fear of rejection. That's a great insight I think people can take is just about the importance of goals in helping them, you know, get themselves into action, right? We all need our reasons why we're doing what we're doing in order to make sure we're motivated on a day-to-day -day basis to do the little things that are getting us there. And, and uh, you had that compelling goal that was so important to you. So that was cool. Nice. Well, you know, my, my first four months, Dan, I had had some success. So it really was shocking when all of a sudden this fear jumped up. And I'm sure a psychologist could analyze my situation at the time, just having gotten married and all those other things and come up with all the psychological reasons. But there's no doubt that it was the goal of becoming an All-American that gave me uh, the determination and the drive that enabled me to overcome the fear. Yeah. Awesome. You said that, uh, you know, the second valuable lesson was about surrounding yourself with the right people. That was the most valuable lesson as it relates to building an organization. It's surrounding yourself with the right people. That's the key and the secret. There's all kinds of things that are important in building an organization, but there's nothing as important as having the right people around you. Everything starts there because if you've got the right people around you, the right things are going to happen. And then the third thing was my secret to every meaningful accomplishment in my life. I will say that just like becoming the number one division in the country and beating Ken Schmidt after a dozen years, everything in my life that I've accomplished that was meaningful came from one thing, never giving up. I was a bulldog in regards to anything that I wanted. And never giving up relates to, number one, having clearly defined goals that you are fully committed to. And number two, having a plan that allows for necessary adjustments. Mm -hmm. And if you are willing to learn what is necessary 
and you have the goal you're committed to, and you develop the plan, and you learn what is necessary, you will never fail. You will never fail at anything. Eventually, you will succeed. For sure. That's a great insight as well. When you talked about, uh, I want to circle back to surrounding yourself with the right people, because I've always felt like one of the keys to surrounding yourself with the right people is being the right person for others. It's being the kind of leader that others would want to follow, would want to be around. And when I think of you, Don, and I think about the lessons I've learned from you, one of the standout lessons that is most clear and vivid in my mind surrounds the power of personal energy, of enthusiasm. You were always somebody who brought so much energy and enthusiasm to the things you did that as a follower of yours, I guess I could say, I wanted to be around you. I wanted to be in your presence. Bruce Goodman on our podcast talked about wanting you know, to pick up the phone when you called because he knew that it was going to be an energizing conversation. He knew he was going to feel better after talking to you than he did before that you always brought that kind of energy. And that was one of the most compelling things that I feel like caused me to always want to be around you and wanted to listen to you and that you really increased your influence for people like me who are you know, observing you and being able to be around you during those days. That power of personal energy really stood out to me. Well, thank you, Dan. That, that's a great compliment and I greatly appreciate it. Yeah. Like how did that develop as you grew up in the business? Well, as far as developing enthusiasm goes, I had a significant factor in in my career. The company sent me, when I was a young division manager, they sent me to spend a week with the nation's top division manager who was located in Wisconsin. Now, it was the dead of winter. I don't know if you know what Wisconsin's like in January, (laughs) but I was a California boy, and I froze all during that week. But that week was one of the most significant weeks of my life. That division manager that I went to spend a week with was the master of enthusiasm, Jerry Otteson. Wow. What I learned was that I shouldn't hold back my enthusiasm, Mm -hmm. that I I should find things to be enthusiastic about and let my enthusiasm go. If you have a sincere belief in the things you are doing and trying to accomplish, Enthusiasm comes naturally. If you don't hold back and you learn how to share that enthusiasm with others, people will respond. And I say learn how to share it because obviously you can't share it in just a willy-nilly fashion. You have to learn how to share it in a way that people will accept it. But if you do, people will respond. They will respond to enthusiasm more so than respond to positive enthusiasm more so than any other feature. Even if it sometimes takes a while to get somebody on your team, if you're positively enthusiastic enough and you have good supporting reasons for that enthusiasm, you will eventually get everybody on your team. Yeah. Wow. That's uh, definitely true, Don. And I do feel like uh, it's one of the most compelling things that I've learned from you, I, I love you sharing the story of Jerry Otteson and being out there and seeing him and, and how he encouraged you to find things to be enthusiastic about and then to, just to let it go, right? To be authentic in your enthusiasm. I think a lot of leaders are a little overconscious about 
trying to maintain some sort of professional edge, which I think does have its value, but that, you know, the, the leader that is genuinely enthusiastic about their vision and about the possibilities and about the people that they're working with, uh, that authenticity really does win hearts and is a compelling part of, uh, of being a leader. Um, well, well stated, Dan. You put that really well. You could, you could do this. You could be me here. <laughs> hey, so I've been to Wisconsin once, Don, and I went out to visit some Vector folks out there, and I went in December <laughs> to Wisconsin. So I can somewhat relate. And as an interesting anecdote, when I went to Wisconsin, I went to visit uh, Chris Niku, who is uh, currently our manager in Milwaukee these days. And we went to the Milwaukee Bucks versus the Golden State Warriors when the Golden State Warriors were 24-0 and 0 to start the season a few years ago. And the Bucks beat them. It was the Warriors' oh, first. It was the Warriors' first loss of the year. So I was in the building for that very game at that point there in Wisconsin. So anyway, I was going to say, Don, that uh, aside from energy, you know, personal energy enthusiasm, what I also can remember most uh, in terms of being influenced by you is in regards to financial concepts. So you very famously gave this talk called Winning the Money Game many times over the years. And I, I truly count you and Roman Malik as the two people who are most influential in getting me to get on to, along with my dad and mom, I would say, because they were pretty conservative in terms of spending. But you and Roman really got me on the right track financially where I was able to buy a house when I was 23 and just continued saving and investing ever since then. And I, I give you a lot of the credit for having uh, you know, first opened my eyes to the possibilities if I could be smart financially. Well, Dan, I'm sure you're, you're an excellent student at whatever you decide that you're going to be a student of. I already know that. All of Cutco's people are independent contractors, and so they're self-employed. Now, that provides great freedom and great opportunity, but it's vital to learn how to handle money if you're going to be self-employed. Mm -hmm. We created a speech called Winning the Money Game that you referenced, and one of the primary attitudes about money from that speech was, part of what you earn is yours to keep. Boom. And I have, a, I have a funny story. It's not a funny story, actually. For me, it was a very touching story and a story that provided me with some real satisfaction. My son and I, we're in a sports book and a casino in Las Vegas. This was a couple of years ago, maybe four or five years ago. I can't remember exactly. So we're there watching a football game. And we're sitting there watching this football game. And I think I hear a voice whisper, part of what you earn is yours to keep. And I went, what? I, I, thought, I thought I was hearing things. So I, I took a quick glance around and I didn't see anybody, I, so I, we went on watching the football game. A few minutes later, the voice came again. <laughs> this time it was louder, and it said, part of what you earn is yours to keep. <laughs> you, that's what I heard. So I turned around, and sitting directly behind me was Lou Borges. Uh, Lou is, uh, today, Lou is a vice president at a very large investment company. Back then, in the early 90s, Lou was a branch manager and a district manager. In Southern California, I remember. In Southern California. And Lou told me that he had a plaque. He has a plaque on his wall. And in that plaque is framed 
Part of what you earn is yours to keep. <laughs> Principle stayed with him. So in preparation for this and remembering that episode with Lou in that casino, I gave him a phone call. And surprisingly to me, Lou was able to recall the three basic principles of learning to win the money game that he learned from that speech in Vector. And those three principles were to set a budget and learn to make it work. Number two, establish an emergency fund. That's critical for all self-employed people because not always are things going to go on the upside. You need to be prepared for some downside. And the emergency fund is what enables you to get through those. And then the third key was to buy your residence. Lou even remembered the district manager meeting in 1991 where he heard the speech about winning the money game. I've got to tell you, all of that was tremendously satisfying for me. Uh, Roman Mount, you mentioned Roman, and Roman is one of the true legends in our business. When I was a young Cutco manager, Roman was an inspiration to me regarding building financial success, like he was to you, and I'm sure like he has been to an awful lot of people. And I recall Roman saying, back then when I was just a young whippersnapper in the business, that this was a quote, as near as I can remember it, it went like this, it is much easier to build financial success if you earn dollars and not dimes. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Well, I think that uh, you took advantage of that by becoming so successful in the company and you definitely uh, learned the lessons from Roman and passed those along to Lou and myself and many others who you know heard you deliver that message many times and and understood the importance of living within our means right so that we had the opportunity to save right creating a gap between our income and our expenditures so we could save it the concept of the emergency fund which is as you said is so critical for you know people in a business like ours where you have that cushion so that you're not feeling stressed and the importance of uh, purchasing your residence so you can start building equity, right? All those things were all some of the parts. Those were only a few of the parts I know of the message. And there were so many good insights in there that you were able to share. So I thank you very much for helping set me on a great track financially. Well, Don, I, I know that uh, you've referenced Bruce Goodman a couple times here and that, uh, you know, he has played a huge role uh, in working with you over the years. I also know that... Uh, Something people probably don't know who are listening to this podcast is that you also had a chance to work directly with John Welpley in Napa as he was sort of sent on assignment to work uh, with you guys in Napa for a while. I'd love to hear anything that you can share in terms of working with John Welpley and Bruce Goodman. Well, John Welpley, as you know, is now president and COO of Vector Marketing, but he was just a kid when we began Vector West. I mean, a kid. I can't remember how old he was, but when I think back, he, he, he felt like he was like 16, but I know he was younger than that. But the company sent him out west to run our offices, the administrative side of the business. Mm -hmm. And what I recall about John at that time were his organization skills, his work ethic. He would be up at 5 o'clock and in the office at 6. And believe me, I was never in the office at 6. Uh, in fact, I was lucky if I staggered in by 9. And the other thing I remember about John is he was a, he played a very physical brand of basketball. <laughs> <laughs> you, you laugh, you laugh. It was serious stuff. I still have scars from playing basketball with John. 
I can remember playing basketball on the court sport court you have in your yard. You still live on Chad Court in, in Napa? Yeah, and we yes, and yeah. we still have the sport court. I, in the yard. I remember, remember playing pool. You remember that pole that holds up the basketball rim? I remember the pole. I also remember some sharp elbows that came. Might might have been you. I'm not sure exactly who it was, but uh, <laughs> I do remember some of that as well. So, uh, well, Dan, that pole, that pole was where John used to drive me five or six times every game. And he would not just <laughs> drive me up against the pole. He would drive me into the pole. <laughs> That's cool. That is so funny to hear. Well, you, you'll be glad to know that the work ethic that John exhibited way back in the day is certainly something that still is maintained to this day. It's not unusual for John to be sending emails out, work-related emails out, uh, so early in the morning that those of us on the West Coast are just going to bed <laughs> when they come out. So, Not uh, surprising. That's not surprising to me. Yep. Exactly. And he certainly is a person who has had a profound impact on the fabric of Vector and Cutco and how we operate, I think, in many ways reflects his own personal philosophies and, and, uh, and ways of being. And I'm looking forward to having John on the podcast pretty soon as well. How about Bruce? Tell us about Bruce. We want to hear about the young Bruce Goodman. Well, I've mentioned Bruce already several times, Dan, and Bruce has been a very important part of my Vector and Cutco career and my success, actually. I actually awarded Bruce his best start prizes at a division meeting in 1979. (laughs) So I've watched him grow up in the business from the very, very beginning. He was always a person everyone wanted to be around. That hasn't changed either. He's always been that kind of person that people want to be around. He's always had a special panache. (laughs) His own very appealing style. And you've worked with him for many years. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yep, for sure. Bruce Goodman Panache. That was very special to Bruce. He had a great mind for the promotional aspects of the business. And uh, we worked together and he was my sales promotion manager. And the two of us together created some of the greatest promotional programs that are still in existence today in the business. Today, of course, as we talked, he is your president of Vector West. Yeah, yeah. Well, he he certainly credits you with providing him two of the biggest opportunities in his life, where he had the chance to come in and work with you as the SPM, and then where later, in sort of an unorthodox path, you tapped him to become the zone manager for the Northwest Zone when the when the regions were restructured into zones. And he certainly credits you with uh, many of the skills and concepts and ideas and things that he learned through being able to work directly with you and, and observe you for all those years that he that he had that chance. So your efforts in developing Bruce into a great leader have led to many other great leaders being able to be born from his guidance. So uh, And you're and you're among those. Well I would be in that family tree for sure. So definitely uh, definitely credit you and Bruce with a lot of my own development. Tell us, Don, about uh, what you've done since Vector. Well, as you know, I think you know, Dan, I retired when I was 55, which you, by the way, are getting close to. Whoa, easy there. Come on. Hard to believe because I remember you as a college student. My age still starts with a four, Don. I know, I know, but you're you're getting there. (laughs) Anyway, since I retired, I've had a second career as a fly fishing travel consultant. 
what I do is I sell fly fishing trips around the globe. My company is flyfishingadventures.org, and this all started about 30 years ago. Our son Scott and I began fly fishing all over the world, Dan, and recorded the experiences with a camera. In other words, I took a lot of photos. We jointly wrote articles in fly fishing magazines, and we were published in 16 different magazines in four different languages over a period of years. And we concluded our publication career self-publishing an award-winning book, Fly Fishing's Greatest Adventures, The Hunt. And when I say award-winning, to my knowledge, it's the only fly fishing book that has actually won an award. It's a book that's dedicated to hunting the world's greatest game fish with a fly rod. Hmm. That's the theme of the book. Other things have occupied my time. I've gotten very involved with Kids Track. And from mid-March through the month of May, all my free time is dedicated to kids' track and field. Mostly it involves fourth grade through eighth grade, although it used to include first, second, and third graders also. It's been a very rewarding experience working with youngsters over the last several years, teaching, coaching Dan, and watching them accomplish things they didn't think were possible, watching them find the thrill of discovery of themselves. Mm -hmm. I've learned what great rewards come from a teaching career. And a successful vector manager is first and foremost a good teacher. Yeah, I love that. The great rewards come from a teaching career. And definitely that uh, relates directly to what we do here uh, in Vector. Is this your grandkids that you're doing the coaching with? That was only the beginning. Several years ago, they were gone from this private school and were on into high school. But by then, I was so committed to working with the kids, and I had so many kids that I considered to be my grandchildren, and I think that many of them considered me to be like their grandfather, that uh, I had all kinds of grandkids. And even though my grandkids were no longer in that school, I couldn't leave. So I've still been a part of the program there, even after my grandkids were gone. Oh, that's awesome. And, and you have five grandkids, Don? Five grandkids, yep. And that's the last thing I've been doing since I retired, is uh, spending time with the family. Uh, my wife of 53 years, which I mentioned, Marty, and I have great kids, Dan, and there's no greater joy in life than being able to say that. To say that you have great kids is a great, great joy. And today we have five fabulous grandchildren who provide us with ongoing fun and excitement. And those are the things that occupy my, my retirement career, my business, my family, and coaching kids track. How much traveling are you doing? Well, in order to sell fly fishing trips around the world, you have to travel the world with a fly rod. So uh, it's part of my business. I have to do it. It's all deductible. And it's really a shame that I have to spend so much time. Well, for instance, in, since December, I've spent two weeks in Belize, two different one-week trips in Belize. Two weeks ago, I got back from a three-week trip in New Zealand and Australia. And those are things, Dan, that I have to do. It's part of my business. And it's very difficult to have to do that as part of my research. But I, I work up the energy to find a way to do it. So it keeps life interesting. That's cool. Don, you have a great 
fly fishing story of the bear in Alaska? Do you think that you can, do you think that you can reach deep into your memory banks and pull that one out? (laughs) If you want to put this on pause, I'll get a photo I can hold up. (laughs) Yes. What the story There's nothing quite like this photo. Okay. Let me pause it so you can get the photo for anybody who is listening and not watching the photo we will take a photo of this photo and post it so you can actually all see it but uh don has got the photo right now why don't you tell us about that photo how close dan is that bear to me in the photo uh the bear looks pretty close to you i I don't i'm gonna say i don't know 30 feet from you in the photo yeah i would say somewhere between 20 and 30 feet yeah so what happens is i'm fishing in alaska and I have this great big rainbow trout on. I mean, I have him hooked up and I'm fighting him. And out of the corner of my eye, about 150 yards down the river, I see um, this big uh, grizzly bear walking out on this pontoon bridge. They built this pontoon bridge across the river so that photographers could go across the river and get up on this big platform they had built and take photographs of the bears. And the, there's a lot of bears in this area that come to feed on the salmon. So out of the corner of my eyes, I see this bear walk out in this pontoon. So I'm watching the bear out of the corner of my eyes. He's like 150 yards down the river from me. He's a long ways away. So I'm fighting this fish, and I'm really excited because it might be the biggest fish I've caught all week. And all of a sudden, that bear jumps off that pontoon bridge and starts running up the river in about three feet of water. And water is spraying everywhere as this like 900 pound bear is charging up the, uh, up, up near the, near the riverbank, charging up the river directly at me. <laughs> well, I remember thinking to myself, this isn't really happening, but I kept watching him and it was really happening. So then I did the only thing that I'd been taught all week. If a bear charges you, Stand up as tall as you can, wave your arms over your head, try to look as large as you can, and yell as loud as you can, hey, bear, hey, bear. So I did that. I I stood up as tall. I had my fly rod still in my hand because I had that fish on. So I'm waving my arms and yelling, hey, bear, hey, bear. So about 50 yards away from me, that bear pulls up. And we have there's another photo that was taken by a professional photographer who was on that platform that I referenced across the river. He happened to be taking pictures of me fishing when this all happened. At that exact moment, the photographer's up there taking photos. It's crazy. At at that exact moment. And this photo became the centerpiece photo of a photo essay that we published in Gray Sporting Journal, which is one of the most prestigious outdoor magazines in the United States, Gray Sporting Journal. So anyway... I'm yelling, hey, bear, hey, bear. And then there's a photo of the bear actually pulls up. He stops and he gets up on his hind legs. He stands up on his hind legs. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, good. I knew this really wasn't going to happen. And just as I thought that, he comes down on all fours, charging up the river again at me. Well, he's getting pretty close now. I don't want to break this fish off. it's It's a big fish. And I don't want to break him off. If you look really carefully at that photo, Dan, you can see the splash over here. You see the splash where my finger is? Yes. Okay. 
Well, when that bear got to be about 30 feet away, as he is in this photo, I decided I needed to do something because this wasn't working out well. <laughs> so I wrapped a line around my hand and I ripped it as hard as I could across the water. When I did that, I, I pulled that fish out of the water and that's the splash at that moment. The photographer caught all of this at the same time. So, and I also broke the fish off, so I was no longer tied to the fish. So I was also told all week, if a grizzly charges you, do not run. If you run, he thinks it's a game, and you will lose the game eventually. So I'm, okay, what do you do? This bear is charging. He's 30 feet away. He's already been running for 150 yards. I can't imagine he's all of a sudden going to go away. So I don't, know, I don't know what to do. I can't run. So in the photo, see the really tall, this tall grass here was about three feet high, the brown grass here. So I was about, in the photo, I'm about four steps away from that brown grass. I just took those four steps over the brown grass, and I rolled into the brown grass. The bear came up, and he stopped about eight feet from where I was lying. He just stopped. And meanwhile, my heart, Dan is beating so hard. I thought, <laughs> I thought he was going to hear my heart beating, right? So I, I remember this so clearly. So I pull the grass apart a little bit, and I'm peering through the grass. And that bear stands there, and he waves his head. <laughs> and he's grunting, and he's moving his head back and forth. And I'm going, I have no idea what's going to happen next. But then I took my fly rod, and I walked out into the river. And I hit him on the nose because he really ticked me off, causing me to lose that fish. So I hit him <laughs> on the nose with my fly rod. And he apologized, Dad, and walked on up the river. <laughs> now, if you believe that, then I have a bridge I want to sell you. <laughs> All of that story is true as I just related it, except for the very last part, because I was scared to death. And I'm laying in that grass. The bear does sit there and stand there. And he goes, <laughs> and he's moving his head back and forth. I had no idea what bear language is. I don't know what he was talking about. But then, fortunately for me, he turned around and began walking up the river and left me alone. So that's the story of me and the bear in Alaska. And this all happens to you. And then you get back to like the fishing lodge where all the people in the area were staying. And the photographer came up to you and literally told you, by the way, all of what happened to you, I got it all. He told me that as soon as the episode ended, he got off of that platform, came running up the river. Oh, okay. He told me he got it all. Now, not only that, Dan, but some of the people, if I remember right, it was a father and son that were fishing with us at the time. They were fishing on that same river. They happened to get a video of this happening. They were on the other side of the river. They got a video of it, and it was on, I can't remember the name of the show. I think it was America's Funniest Home Videos. It was a TV show. That video was on the TV show also. So anyway, there was, there was a lot of things surrounding that bear and me and the, and the fly rod and that big rainbow trout. Wow. Cool story. I enjoyed hearing that once again. I enjoyed hearing that uh, back in the day when you would share it. That was always an awesome thing to hear uh, about uh, all of your great adventures. Well, Don, you've had a great career in Vector and a great series of things you've done since that time. 
husband, a father, a grandfather, amazing executive in our company, leader and mentor to many, fly fishing travel consultant now where you get to have that difficult task of traveling to cool spots to go fly fishing and taking pictures and uh, and really enjoying your life. And, and I think you can really look back and be proud of the things you've been able to do and, and look back really and be proud of the people that you've been able to influence. Of course, uh, you know, Bruce and I both count ourselves as two of the people uh, up very far in the line that you have impacted and influenced over your career. So just want to say thanks so much for all the impact you've had on so many great people. Well, Dan, thank you. And I got to tell you, I'm really honored the way you've handled this and the way you've treated me in this process. Um, You really know how to make a guy feel good, especially a very old guy. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Don. I know that uh, the Vector World is going to love hearing your stories and your lessons. Thanks, Dan. That was the great Don Muehlrath, everyone, just an amazing human being. And I count myself as so lucky to have had someone like him as an early role model as my Cutco Vector career was just getting started. Loved hearing him talk about the competition with Ken Schmidt, how they competed as sales reps way back in you know one of Don's first years in the business when Ken was number one and Don was number four in the All-American race. They competed as managers, as division managers, right? Ken was number one and Don was number two for four years in a row before Don finally eclipsed Ken in that fifth year as a division manager. And it's, uh, it's cool just thinking about how some of those same stories relate to me and my career and competing with some of the people whose names I mentioned earlier today, thinking about right now in my career, competing as a region manager with Lloyd Reagan, who's been the perennial champion for years and years right now. And it's great for all of you to think about some of the peers and competitors that you have and developing that kind of relationship where you love to compete with them, you want to beat them, but and then when the race is over, you're one of the first people to call and congratulate the person who won and you feel proud of what they accomplished and you use that as fuel to motivate yourself. That was cool. Don's enthusiasm and personal energy came through in this interview. Cool to hear that he credits Jerry Otteson as one of the people who taught him about that authentic level of enthusiasm and energy. Of course, Don's signature concept in winning the money game was a part of what you earn is yours to keep. And that was always something that uh, stuck out to me, right? Is making sure that I was creating that gap between my earnings and my expenditures so that I had the chance to save and invest and keep a part of what I was earning because that part that you keep multiplies over and over and over and enables you to have many more financial resources in the future to be able to do more of the things that you love to do. By doing that and by earning dollars, not dimes, Don Mulerath is able to retire at age 55 uh, with a substantial nest egg to be able to live the life that he's wanted to live on a personal level since that time. I hope you enjoyed the story of the bear in Alaska. That was always one of my favorites of his. And he, he uh, toward the end, said, great rewards come from a teaching career. Don was largely responsible for teaching a young Bruce Goodman. And Bruce, I feel, is one of the most important teachers in my life. 
I would hope that many of you listening to the podcast feel like I've contributed as a teacher to you. And I hope that all of you can look at who are you teaching in your career? Who are you impacting in your career? What legacy are you leaving? Because the greatest rewards in our life do not come from the trophies, the awards, the achievements, the income that we earn, but it comes from the impact we have on others and how we're able to teach and develop other people, how we are able to change lives. And I hope that all of you can find your ways of changing people's lives through the positive influence that you have on other people. Thanks so much. Hope you enjoyed this. See you later. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode of Changing Lives, Selling Knives, hit the subscribe button so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. And if you want access to today's show notes, including links to any resources mentioned, visit changinglivespodcast.com. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. I'll catch you back here in a few days for our next story about changing lives.